Welcome to Life of the School, episode 49. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I'm doing something different. I'm sitting down with two teachers. I'm going to sit down with Michael Ralph and Lawrence Woodruff, who are the hosts of the podcast Two Point PLC. Lawrence is a biology teacher at Olathe East High School, and Michael works at the University of Kansas Center for STEM Learning. At one time, they worked in the same high school and in the same science department where they both taught biology, and they developed a professional relationship where they engaged in rich, challenging discussions about teaching and learning. After Michael left to work at the University of Kansas, they continued their discussion and collaboration and started the podcast Two Pint PLC. Welcome, guys. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Lawrence. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, it's funny. I normally do my internet, po- uh, you know, st- stalking of people, but for you guys, it represented like hours of listening to podcasts to stalk you guys to <laughs> to show prep. Uh- <laughs> well, thank you so much. That makes me feel so good. <laughs> yeah, you, you look at the you look at the numbers. You can see that I, there was a couple of upticks in numbers. It was me me going back and re-listening to some shows. Um- <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm the number guy, and I did notice that. <laughs> I, I think there's two or three of them. I think I might have listened to more than once because I was like oh, wait a minute what did they say what, what was that okay i agree with that i disagree with that so uh, i'm glad you guys t- could join me and um you know i think uh are, are either you guys going to be at the read um uh, i will i've been doing the ap read for three years now uh yeah a few years i'll be there all right not i Okay, so so that's Michael who will be at it, and Lawrence who will not. We can we're going to work on getting the voices down uh, for listeners who may not know your episodes, and and hopefully we'll uh, subscribe and start listening to stuff uh, starting after this one out. But this is going to be the episode that comes out right after the read. So uh, this is a little preview of a couple of things. One, uh, I'm going to sit down and talk to these guys for their podcast, and I'm going to be I think on their June episode if that if I have it right. And then Michael and I will be together at the read, and this is going to be the episode that comes out right after the read. So um, so thanks. Thanks for sitting down with me on uh, on this holiday uh, so that we can get this recorded. Um, so let me just dive into it, and I think I'll, I'll do one at a time, and, and this is a question I like to ask everyone. So maybe I'll start with Lawrence first. Um, how did you become a science teacher? What got you into the science classroom? Well, uh, what do you want the short, medium, or long answer to that question? Uh, let's go like medium-long. Okay, medium long. <laughs> well, uh, teaching is my second career. Mm-hmm. I worked in a molecular genetics laboratory for eight years before I transitioned to becoming a teacher. And uh, I got a bachelor's degree from Iowa State University in 2003. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a molecular genetics lab there. And uh, what actually is an important part of my transition into teaching is uh the fact that I was studying martial arts, actually. <laughs> so I was working in the lab, and I was also starting uh, this martial art, Hapkido, which is a Korean self-defense. And I had been studying that for quite some time, uh, and I had earned a teacher rank uh, within that art. And then one day, uh, in our the beginning of our summer session, uh, when the new white belts were coming in, my instructor patted me on the back, and he said, all right, 
you are teaching the white belts this summer. And <laughs> I had 10 minutes notice and uh, I'm all nervous and scared, but I jump into it. I, I, at this point I had been doing the art for about six or seven years. So it wasn't, you know, it's not like I didn't know what the beginning things looked like. And uh, I committed and we regularly met three times a week during the course of that summer. And at the end of that summer, there was a testing. And during our, these testings, we invite instructors from other schools to come take a look at our kids and then give us feedback regarding their progress. <laughs> and uh, when I heard that feedback, I was just full of dopamine. I was so proud of them. I was so excited about what they had done and what they had accomplished. And uh, the, uh, the, the positive remarks from the other instructors just... I was, I felt so good and the light bulb went off. I never really felt this way about what I was doing uh, at, at the lab. And so the lab was a great job. It was super convenient. It was super fun. The people were super great, but I just didn't get that rich satisfaction that I was getting at this moment. And I thought I've got to change my life so that I can get paid to have this feeling. And, and that's what uh, led me to, to my second career into teaching. Yeah. And you have, uh, if I have it right, you have some uh, some family history of, of education in the family background, too. I do. And it was a secret to me, actually. <laughs> I didn't really understand this until I was in my teacher education program that my dad was a licensed chemistry teacher and he taught for one year and he got burned out of it. Uh, but then my grandparent, my, my grandfather was a teacher and uh, two generations prior to that were teachers. So I've got five consecutive generations <laughs> of teachers and I had no idea. Yeah. So you have this uh, this like hidden family secret that comes out. I guess of all the family secrets to have like creep out, that's not such a bad one. No, it's a pretty great <laughs> one actually. I'm pretty happy about it. And so, and so Michael, how did you end up starting your teaching career? What you led you into the classroom? Uh, it's interesting because I have a few things in common with Woodruff, but then there's a few things that are super different. Uh, so I also come from a family of teachers. In particular, my mother is also a biology teacher. and She's been doing it for a couple of decades and she teaches high school biology also. And so I was in her class twice, both as a freshman and then in AP biology later. And so uh, I had this vision of what it looked like a teacher did uh, as I was growing up. And so I really, I've always loved science uh, from a very young age. I was like, chemistry is great and making chemicals and, and, and doing extracurriculars. I've, I've loved science for as long as I can remember. Uh, but uh, watching my mom be a teacher and being a general contrarian, I was like, I do not want to be a teacher. I, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to go, I want to go do something else. And so I, I went to KU uh, to pursue a profession as a professional scientist, as a researcher. And so uh, my first couple of years, I was doing the typical things of uh, taking, you know, increasingly rigorous science courses. I was a biochemistry major. And so I was doing chemistry and biology stuff. And as I went, as I went on, I, 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 I was becoming more and more disengaged in my coursework because uh, I just wasn't finding it to be satisfying in the way that the things that I've been doing growing up uh, had been satisfying to me. I was my my grades were slipping, my participation, my attendance in classes was bad, my my lab work was uh, more and more spotty. You know, just minimal, get it done and then get it out of your life. But I still had this fire for science, and so. Um, when did you get like lured down a dark alley by the Williamsons? I guess is the question. Uh, that's, that's not an unreasonable question. They are in this story. Uh, but it was actually a little bit more organic. So my participation in class, spotty as it was, I still knew some things about science. And so I was doing a handful of tutoring sessions uh, with friends and mm -hmm. peers 
uh, in courses that I had taken previously. And I really looked forward to those events. So I was excited to go to my evening uh, study session with friends and look at calculus or talk about uh, early biology concepts. I mean, even at social events, I'd be the guy in the corner explaining to a couple of total strangers how how cell division in bacteria is different than cell division in eukaryotes. And so it, there was this strange disconnect of I really liked scientific ideas and sharing a passion with people, despite the fact that being in the lab wasn't fulfilling in the way that I had hoped. And so um, eventually this conversation came from a friend of mine after one of those tutoring sessions. And she pulls me aside. She's like, hey, this was a really great evening. Uh, we all really appreciate the conversations. And it was it was pleasant. It was fun. I was like, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed also. And she, she kind of stopped me. She said, hey, I know that you've been having these problems in class and in finding some direction. She said, this is what you like. This is what you do on your off time. Do this. Find a way to make this what you what you do with your life because this is already what you're doing with your life. Yeah. And there was a lot of wisdom in that comment. And so I went and uh, I investigated uh, some teacher preparation programs for the next semester and was very fortunate. I know you've talked to a couple of, um, of my fellow alum on this show. <laughs> and so I am actually the first science graduate to ever be produced from the uh, UCAN teacher program so uh -huh. that was that was how that happened neat so as you're talking about that uh it's bringing back an experience for me and uh when i was i remember distinctly taking organic chemistry in college and 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 everybody was like really struggling at that but for whatever reason i'm not sure what it is i mean there's a lot of things that are odd about me but organic uh, organic chemistry made perfect sense to me I, I don't know why i think it has to do with how people see things differently the three-dimensionality of it it just flowed for me. And it for from day one, I sat down in organic chemistry and it just made sense. And unlike other classes, I could give you a lot of classes I struggled through in college, but that one I just totally got. And I remember those times of sitting down with people and talking to them through and you know trying to get the picture. And that puzzle of this is so clear to me, how do I make this thing that's not clear to somebody else clearer? And the puzzle of trying to solve that was actually the first inkling I ever had that I might be a teacher. like Because solving that puzzle of how do I take this thing that clearly is complicated, but I'm just reading and it's not hard for me, but how do I then tell a story? And I don't even think I was using that language back then, but like, but how do I, how do I make this picture that's so obvious to me? Like these two things, they interact in this way. And how do I take that and translate that to another human being? so that they can have the same understanding I do. That was sort of the first inkling I had that this this is an interesting puzzle that I like to solve, and I'm super curious about how to solve this hard puzzle. It's that same tutoring moment that I had, you know, when I was in college and and helping my friends out, you know, in those same study sessions. So it was a, it was a good callback for me. It's funny you mentioned puzzle because that makes me think of some of the same reasons why I why I like the profession that we're in now is is you know you get through this you get through this understanding you develop an increasingly robust schema but you have this this trap of you know we call it the the curse of knowing right you mm -hmm. you kind of forget what it was like to not know some things and so getting to go back and share stories and share share knowledge and share experiences with people who don't know as much as you I get some strong nostalgia effects from that of oh yeah I remember when I was struggling to understand like mitochondria weird they're super weird i had those questions and you have other questions that i should have been asking and so uh yeah i agree I, it really it 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 lets me relive some of those paths to understanding by sharing those showing those experiences with other students it makes me also wonder a little bit about um the bait and switch that is our career uh because we and you mentioned earlier michael and i'm sure that that lawrence you have the same feelings that 
when we went through our education, it was very much a stand and deliver moment. We have an image of a teacher standing in front of the room, transmitting information to us. And so the the mental picture of what I had when I started to choose my path about being a teacher was very much a stand and deliver pathway. But that's not the world anymore. Um, and so when I say the like bait and switch, sort of the the mental idea, and I'm so glad that that's the career is changing and that it's becoming more dynamic. But at the same time, I do wonder a little bit about the picture of what it means to become a teacher and how different that is from what I thought it was going to be when I <laughs> went and got my degree and got my my master's in education and I started teaching. The thing that I thought this was going to be is not the thing that it is. It's a very different. And while, yes, there are desks and it's a room and I, you know... I can project information in their textbooks. The truth is, is that the 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 core day to day stuff is so so different from that that picture of what it was. I I guess I wonder if maybe from Lawrence's perspective, especially as somebody who you know went out and then came back, do you find that was that everything something that you struggled with when you became a teacher? Um, no, and uh, <laughs> I have to say no because uh, of the uniqueness of my particular teacher education program. Uh, my major professors, uh, Dr. Joanne Olson and Michael Clough, who uh, they were at Iowa State, they're now at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. Um, they spent a lot of time, uh, like basically uh, a quarter of the program was a rich critique of legacy teaching practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they, they basically said, um, the people who go back to be teachers are usually the people that were able to navigate and be successful in a broken system. Mm-hmm. So if, <laughs> if you come out loving a particular, you know, experience, uh, well, that's you're the one or two percent that this flawed system resonated with. And if you go back to propagate what you like, you will be neglecting the experiences of 98% of your students. Mm-hmm. So you can't go into the classroom and do what you like and what feels good to you because that classroom is not about you. And that message was really consistently um, pounded into us. We were philosophically challenged and and they, they said, you can't go in just imagining what you want. You've got to check everything against the research base. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, I did not have that giant, uh, that bait and switch. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to go in here and instinctually teach like garbage for a year. And then when my mind clears, I can go back mm. and double check everything against what we know about teaching. So I actually didn't have that. I was, I was wide eyed and scared before <laughs> I even got into the classroom. So you knew it was a different wilderness that you were wandering into. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And so like, Michael, you went to You Can Teach, and I know that that's very steeped in research as well. Is that, I mean, you're nodding your head throughout this whole, you know, through Lawrence's talk, you felt the same way that you were, you were well prepared for the, the changing of the system? Well, so I was nodding because he's talking about uh, the system not serving uh, this, the direct instruction um, past practices not serving so many students. And I was that student like that. I was one of those people who I was I, I did not seek challenge. I disengaged in the classroom for most, for many of my courses. Uh, and so what I really loved was all the extracurricular experiences and all the hobby experiences that I was having, you know, science fair. I remember 
all of my science fair projects. Like I really enjoyed all those extra experiences that were much closer to the practices that are more common today. And that was actually a piece of why I was so hesitant to go into education. It was like, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be a part of a system that operates that way. And so as I was like, okay, maybe I should think about education because of these, this passion that I have uh, for, for my subject, I was searching for some way to, to make that real without conceding on some of some of my hard lines. And I took a meeting from uh, the the original the founders of the You Can Teach program in an advising appointment because they were just you know they were just founding the program. And so I took a lead, meeting from uh, Jan Lerivier and I'm gonna send her a copy of this tape because <laughs> she changed my life in deep and dramatic ways. because uh, she took my advising meeting and basically sat down and gave that same that same talk that uh, that Lawrence is describing of here's the way education works in too many places. That is not the way it should work. We need authentic experiences. We need to put their hands on science materials. And I'm just like, I'm just singing, I'm preach. I want that, I want that in my life right now. And so I signed in blood walking out of that room that day. And I, I've been on fire ever since. I. Uh, she she gave me the message I was searching for. And so I, I was that student who said, this system doesn't work. And she said, you're right. Here's here's research that says there's a better way to do it. And I was like, I want to do that. Let's show me how. All right. So, so I, I mean, I'm a little, you know, spirited by this because this is definitely, you know, my training was a little earlier uh, than you guys and it was not necessarily the system. Uh, and I don't, I didn't feel like, I should say this uh, appropriately. I feel like there was a half-hearted uh, discussion of the fact that there was aspects of the system that were were not serving all students. And I don't want to say that they didn't talk about inquiry, but I honestly really feel like in the 90s, while people felt that way, they really didn't know what it looked like to do it differently, at least not in the program I was in within science. It was still so content heavy. And then my next piece, and this is the thing that I'm wondering about with you guys, is so then you leave this, you know, um, the, these ivory towers of education and you go in to work with veteran teachers who've been in the classroom for 25 years and they've seen all of these different ideas that have come out. Did you did you come out and find that you met with cynicism or were were you brought into departments where it felt it felt good and and as as one of you guys stayed and one of you left maybe maybe this is an appropriate thing for you michael like what did you how did you feel when you encountered the 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 veteran teachers that had been doing it for 20 years uh, i actually i actually i believe that I spent a semester unemployed for that reason. I was very transparent uh, coming out of the program about what I was about. I was like, these are these are the things I'm going to do. There are lots. There's lots of things I don't know, but inquiry is what's going to happen in my room. So if you want, if you hire me, that needs to be something you understand. And so I I, I took an interview from a, a, a district near Lawrence uh, in that first semester coming out, and I I basically said that in my interview, and then they didn't want me. They're like fine. We don't want inquiry. Take it easy. Farewell. Uh, so I had to find something else to do uh, in that in that intervening semester. Um, but when I did take my job at Olathe East, uh, Paula Donham knew the program and she knew the master teachers who who trained me. And I got a chance to meet her at a professional at a professional event. And she said, that's what we want. That's the kind of department I run. 
I want you to submit an application. And so uh, when I was hired to lay these, I was very, very fortunate to come into a department that said, that's what we're about. We don't have all the answers. There are a lot of things that we can do better, but we want to pursue these research supported ideals. We want you to be a part of that. So I, I am very grateful to have been hired by Paula Donham into a department that was ready to nurture, um, you know, a nascent seed of some practices that I think are pretty great. So I was really fortunate that the veteran teachers are actually very supportive of some of these practices that we were trying to pursue. So you got a good match in that case. And this was a school where, where you teach too, Lawrence. So is that, did you mirror that same experience? Yeah, I believe I was hired uh, two years later. Mm-hmm. So his third year was my first year. And uh, I was hired by the same person, same department head. Uh, and there is a, a wide variety of experience in the department in the department, everyone was generally supportive of you trying new things to make your classroom work. There was not a, uh, a ever, a, ever a sense that, well, that's not how I do it. That's not how we do it. You should do it how we do it. I never felt that from anyone ever in that department. So even if people did disagree with me, uh, they, they their disagreement was, I don't like that, but I'm glad that you are excited about what you're doing in your classroom. So, you know, carry on. And it allowed us a lot of freedom uh, to, uh, to, to grow and try new things. Uh, but uh, I mean, I was with this guy and uh, that was great because both of us were uh, able to uh, sort of start these dialogues about research supported practices and challenge each other. And uh, it's been very good. It's been very good for both of us. Well, and I I think one of the themes that has come up in many of your episodes up to this point is, um, is the importance of discomfort and vulnerability. And, and I think that that's sort of this reoccurring theme that, that, that I hear in a lot of different spaces, whether you're talking about a specific article or talking about your own individual practice, that, being completely comfortable is not actually a good thing, but at the same time, when you're uncomfortable, you you have to be able to be with people that you're able to be vulnerable with, if that makes some logical sense. <laughs> um, so I guess now we have, we're going to transition to uh, Michael abandoning you, Lawrence, um, and he's going to leave <laughs> and he's going to go out. And so now you guys are going to be in different environments. And, and to me, this is a, a, I don't know. Maybe this is like the challenge of trying to be a grown up. Uh, but like when people leave the school and they you don't get to see them on a day to day basis, um, how are you guys able to stay connected and maintain this professional dialogue when you weren't, you know, sharing a lunch or in the same building every single day and you've made this shift? So, so I guess Lawrence, you're you're the one who who stayed behind. Um, how are you able to maintain this relationship? Well, uh, so let's. Let's dissect the relationship a little bit. I in the first two years, he was the experienced teacher, and I was the absolute first year, you know, absolutely green. Uh, and it was it wasn't entirely one way, but it was primarily one way. He was coming to me and saying, "You got to fix this," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I got to fix that," and "You got to fix this," and "Yeah, I got to fix that." Uh, it wasn't until the third or fourth year that I could start becoming comfortable where I could be vulnerable, uh, but uh, also able to punch back as it were. (laughs) And that was really, I think, that third year when we really, really, the nature of the relationship really became uh, the challenging one that it is now and the collaborative one that it is now. Um, And so uh, during the course of that, uh, we'd sit and argue with each other at lunch 
uh, and it was fantastic. And um, uh, but it be ended up becoming something of a friendship. We saw each other outside of of work just to hang out and not talk about work. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, uh, <laughs> we um, I, I would like to get your wives uh, to sit down and f tell me whether or not you didn't talk teaching uh, when you were outside of school. Uh, I suppose that <laughs> I have to concede that it was always with us. Um, but we we uh, we got to see each other regularly. Uh, and we just became more and more comfortable with each other. And then it was really um, when he left, we both recognized that this would be a very painful gap. Hmm. This lack of dialogue would have would be unacceptable. Yeah. And so we had to find a way to fill it. And so, Michael, for you, I guess now you're transitioning to this new program. Uh, I guess my, you know, the this is cynical, but your motivation for staying connected with a classroom teacher who is still in there every single day, who you have this long-standing relationship, that seems obvious, but that's that's very temporary. Like in order to keep this relationship going over many years and and wanting to start a major project <laughs> together, it's beyond just that superficial. Oh, this is my connection back to the classroom. So, was there a void for you in terms of that professional dialogue when you made this transition? And maybe we can go in a little bit. Like, what was this transition for you uh that's a there's no was involved there's yeah. there is still a void in my life from having left and uh, and lawrence is a really big piece of that but he's not the only piece in that either i i was not ignorant of how how fortunate i'd been to find such a nurturing and supportive department especially mm -hmm. since i've been back this year and i've had a chance to interact with alumni and graduates and and guest teachers and so having um you know more interactions with a, a lot of different teachers in a lot of different departments and you know everybody wants to support students everyone everybody wants to do the right thing no question uh but my department i my department was special like i i really knew that i was fortunate and that it wasn't going to get replaced. I mean, even if I ended up playing another high school, I wasn't going to get what I had at Olathe East. And so uh, I was really, really torn about leaving that space. And uh, my coworkers are great now. We And they challenge me. We have productive discussions. Uh, it's just different. And uh, it's just different. So a big piece of pitching our, our podcast was I wanted, I wanted hooks. I wanted things that were going to be hard to ignore and go away because I really wanted to have some structure to maintaining this relationship uh, over time. And so that, that was a big piece of this podcast. And he, you know, he mentioned, we, we hung out outside of work. And by the end of that, by the end of my time at Olathe East, we hung out a lot. We did a lot of different things together. We, we had like three standing social events on many of, <laughs> on many of the weeks for different reasons. Um, and so that was really great. So in that first semester, when I was gone, it, it only a little bit felt like I was missing out on Lawrence Woodruff time because I was getting a lot of Lawrence Woodruff time. Uh, but then I had, I created a pair of humans. And so now they suck up a lot of my time. And so those social engagements had to get pruned and I had to prioritize some other things. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned the long haul and there's no way to know what's going to happen over the long term, but it, this is something that's so fundamental to who I am professionally now and who I want to be as a professional 10 years from now that I, I, I really look at it as a non-negotiable. I, I have to make space in my life for interacting with Lawrence Woodruff in particular, <laughs> Olathe's teachers in general. And I, because without them, I'm a worse teacher. That's just, that's the deal. Yeah. Well, I've, I've I, yeah, go ahead, Lawrence. Sorry. Uh, so I guess this is kind of, this conversation has kind of gone into like the value of the podcast to us mm -hmm. as in like, what do we get out of it? <laughs> and I think one of the things is that um, for me, it's 
uh, obviously the discussions that I get to have with my colleague are an important part of it, but uh, it also serves the purpose of giving me like a codified scheduled reason <laughs> to read education research every single month. Yeah. Um, it's really easy for us to get um, uh, like our, our, tethered to what we're doing in our classroom and you know we've we we know that these challenges exist and we're trying and we're doing different solutions and we get bogged down in the the mechanics of what does my classroom look like and what do my students look like and how are how are the complexities of my students something that i'm going to have to change and deal with this year um and we can we can you know go to our neighbors and we can go to our administrators and we can go to our counselors and we can get ideas uh and it it's it takes some effort to commit yourself to uh, read research, it takes effort. And so if I'm in it with somebody, like I'm part of this community and we do this as a regular basis and we're going to read research because that alone is a, is a cornerstone part of growing our profession, uh, it allows me to do that communally, which makes it an easier burden than having to schedule, when am I gonna prioritize my own time for this? No, no, we're doing this together and, and I, it makes it much easier for me to, to commit to that. Yeah, I, I absolutely can hear that because I can think back to uh, we had a fairly, um, I mean, contentious is the wrong word, but definitely uh, we got into a little bit of a discussion a couple weeks ago on the Slack and and I had some opinions and there were uh, very strong opinions said about, uh, you know, standards-based gradings and the gap of standards-based grading. And I literally have had it as this burning thing in the back of my mind. I want to post something. I want to post something. I want to post something. But there's no reason, like, it's there's no timetable that I have to post something. I tried to put an artificial date that, I, oh, I'm going to get back to this. Oh, I'm going to look some stuff up. Oh, I'm going to, but there is no schedule. And right. when I get to it and, you know, my senior grades came up and I had to yeah. work on this and I had to work on that. And there's a lot of things that you have to deal with, um, you know, both professionally and personally and making those priorities is very challenging. Um on a personal basis, I'm I'm jealous a little bit. I had and I've said this before. My original thought was I was going to do podcasts like what you guys are talking about, um, but I don't know that I had that sort of colleague that I felt that I could impose upon um, on the schedule that I want to. Like, and truth be told, that that was really the words. Like, I have lots of friends and lots of teacher friends, but uh, like starting a podcast and setting a commitment, and you guys do once a month, and I, mine is twice a month, and and there was an imposing schedule there. I like, I'm jealous of the fact that you guys were able to impose upon each other in this way. Um, I think it speaks a lot to the friendship. So um, yeah, I, as a compliment to both of you guys as professionals, but also on the, that friendship piece. So I think we've hit like what led to this development of, of the podcast. So now the question is like, where are we going? You guys are 15 in as the, at the time of this recording. I know you got another recording scheduled for later this week and, and you're going to keep going on this. So, you know, uh, you've, you've definitely been putting out one a month and you've changed around a little bit of format, but what are you guys looking forward to? We can start with the podcast and then, and then maybe also talking about sort of the teaching and learning piece later. But, um, you know, Lawrence, what are you looking forward to from the, the podcast in the next, you know, year or so? Well, um, it's with no question that Michael Ralph is our, uh, production manager. <laughs> um, I, as you said, you talked about impositions. I believe in having these conversations, but I'm pretty greedy. I do this for me. <laughs> I do this for me. Um, Mr. Ralph has a different view of the world and he, he does it for himself, but he does it for other people too. Uh, and so um, I 
say, yeah, let's do that. So he he's basically this is his show, and I am I am I'm the Andy Richter. I'm the side <laughs> guest. I am just on the sidelines, uh, and um, we we joke about episode thirty five being the official first episode of the show because we know that there's going to be so much edits, revisions, and improvements as we, uh, you know, dust ourselves off and we get there. And there's been a lot of changes so far, and I know there's going to be a lot of changes. So I'm just kind of in the, uh, what is it, the sidecar of this motorcycle. And uh, I and I like the breeze, and uh, I'll keep coming. And that's, that's how I see myself in this production. All right, so the, for the brains behind the operation, uh, apparently Michael, or the driver of this uh, this initiative, what are you looking forward to in the in the podcast? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm I'm enjoying the motorcycle analogy because I have a motorcycle, and so I'm like, oh yeah, I like yeah, that. Sounds that sounds cool. <laughs> I have two answers to this. He mentioned that I do this for me, and I also do this for other people, and that's actually genuinely true. There are things out of this that are really important for me, and things that are important to just how I view my role in the professional community. Uh, for me, I look forward to changing more. Lawrence and I have uh, many of the same priorities, but we're really different in how we approach some of those priorities. Some of just we're pretty different people. And what I like about talking to Lawrence is we can be very clear with each other about what we think and where we disagree. And so I look forward to being shaped and changed more as we meet, read more research, as we have more debates and discussions. And he's like, no, I don't like that for these reasons. And I'm like, those are great reasons. I don't like that. Like I'm going to change my mind uh, because that's already happened on the show in, in some important ways. And I think that they're going to happen more and not only in from the research reading, but also as we talk to more people, uh, you know, having researchers come on has been an amazing experience that comes from Lawrence's prioritization of community and relationships. And like, if we're going to read research. That's great. But let's talk to the people who wrote it because they can answer some of these questions. And I'm like, that is correct. Like I, I would not have gone there on my own but that's a, that was an amazing idea, and I want more of that. So I, interacting with more people in more meaningful ways is not always my default inclination. And so doing the show with Lawrence uh, pushes me to do more of that, and it's good for me. It's really good for me. So I look forward to being shaped and changed by more perspectives uh, as we do more of the show. And then on the other side of that, I think engaging with more ideas is important. I think opening dialogue and greater engagement with research is worthwhile. And so I look forward to having more of that, uh, hopefully, as our community grows as the show continues. So just generally having more discussion and more debate so we can all get better as, as educators is a thing that I think is worth being excited for. All right. So now into the 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 more specifics of the teaching and learning. So, I I we've alluded to it a little bit through my my pointing um, and that and that sort of thing. So I'm going to get into some of the teaching and learning because I I do feel like that you guys both have sort of sort of philosophical stances about like how you run your classroom or how the education flows or how it's not working in directions you want to move. And so I guess my curiosity is that you know um, it would it be fair to say Lawrence that you're Standards-based grade, uh, students' interests drives the curriculum. Is that a is that a fair assessment for your classroom, Lawrence? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty pro standard-based grades, and I always allow. I always. I don't want to even use sacrifice. I allot classroom time to responding specifically to student questions. Uh, it, I am never off task. I am never off topic because <laughs> if they want to know then that is the topic. So I guess now the question is like, where, where do you feel the areas that you want to, you know, want to learn from the community to help 
challenge your thinking to make it more precise and more make it more rich for that student experience? Well, there are a lot of things that I don't do well, and I know I don't do them, mm-hmm. and I haven't really, I've just been sitting on this inertia for so long that it's really tough. Um, I My weaknesses are um, managing um, uh, concrete investigation experiences. I don't do that very well. Um, and when I do it, I don't think I manage it very well so that um, the freedom that I'm willing and committed to giving my kids from a, a discussion, uh, questioning, dialogue, and I'm, I'm, I do that very well, but when it comes to how do I uh, respond to their investigation needs, I don't do that as very well. So more project-based and uh, responsive lab experiences are something that I definitely need to work on and I need to do more of. And one of the things that I think is going to motivate me to do that is actually start taking, and I even saying this makes me sound, I'm just so scared to say it, but start taking student teachers. Because when I do that, I will be obligated to role model better practices that I am doing right now. And I may be comfortable letting myself off the hook for that. But if I'm responsible for someone else and I'm supposed to be modeling good practice for them, then I'm on the hook. I'm so on the hook and it matters so much to me. So um, I'm going to have to start reading research about how to be a good cooperating teacher because I think that's what I need to do to push myself in my own practice. As you're saying that, I'm like, I am totally comfortable running labs, but I do not run standards-based grades. And I am uh, very nascent in my use of student feedback to guide instruction. So like, just to be like, I feel like I'm, I'm your mirror image, you know, like you're, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, you're negative in that regard. We have probably things that we should discuss. Yeah. So That's, like yeah. For, for me, like, cause you know, I teach in a very traditional school, the concepts of standards based grades are honestly, I think if I, I surveyed, you know, 50 teachers in my school, um, I, I bet you 45 of them have no idea about standards-based grades or what it would even look like. It's like that is the the nature of how traditional the school is. And I don't want to say that nobody does it, but it's just not a practice that's run in my in my educational sphere on a day-to-day basis. Um, but in terms of setting up baseline labs and allowing students to guiding students to design their own investigations and then creating those spaces and structure those, like well, that like my wheelhouse. I could I can do that all day long. But the on the other side, I definitely know that from a student feedback, I've been experimenting with that this year and um, and find that while it's very good, I feel like it's I have a lot of uncertainty. Like I do it a little bit and I know I could do it a lot better and I'm happy with the things I'm doing, but I'm very critical of like, yeah, I'm doing this much of it, this tiny, tiny little bit of it, but I could do way, way more. And that that's an area of um and you're a definitive area of growth for me personally. So uh, that was very interesting, as you were going to say, as you were describing that, because I was like, yep, no opposite, complete opposite on that. So, so Michael, you have this very different role. So, like, what is what is your, I guess, maybe what is your role with teaching and learning and how are you going to take these experiences from from what you're discussing into the the teaching and learning realm? Yeah, my my job is super different now. That's a there. It's not even a joke. It's just a practice. I I refuse to tell anybody any definitive value judgment about the new job for my first six months because it was so different. That was like I do not know enough about this job to tell you whether I like it or don't like it. Like it's it's really different than the than the high school uh, experience. My responsibilities. I was hired primarily to teach research methods. 
to you can teach students and then also any other students who want to take it. And I also help out with some of the other clinical coursework, some of the in instruction methods courses. I also am a, am a, an, uh, an assigned secondary instructor, uh, but research methods is really my wheelhouse. And I was really excited to do that. I, as you mentioned, inquiry is my thing. I've been doing it my whole career. Uh, I think I know a few things about it. I can do some things better, but I really was excited to get to go uh, share with students some of the things that I thought that I might have figured out in my experience. And I think there are some things that I have to offer, but there are some things that worked in the high school classroom that come into the university level and talking to university faculty and working with university students uh, have highlighted some things that are just different. They're just different from what they are in the high school level. And so I get to reconsider some of my practices. What 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 am I doing at these more rigorous levels, at these more complex levels that I kind of got away with at the high school because it was sufficiently new and sufficiently challenging that everybody who's in Oz because you're doing it at the high school level in the first place. Where at university, they're like, yeah, that is the next thing you do. That okay, so how are you doing it? And I'm like, oh man. Okay, so let's go back to like what are all of my options and what's the research say about that? And so getting to push myself in a, in some directions that um, I didn't I didn't push myself as far at the high school level has been really exciting. Uh, quantitative skills in particular has kind of been my area of focus so far. Uh, something that I do a little bit of work uh, on that topic with the college board and have for a couple of years. And so getting to see what's that look like at the university level as far as uh, modeling has really been my big focus, uh, doing some big curricular changes to incorporate modeling as an integral part of research process as opposed to often it ends up as window dressing. And so I was like, this needs to be a fundamental part of how we train and what we do. And so what what will that look like when it's no longer optional, when it is central? And so uh, that's kind of been my focus this semester. And then going into next semester is uh, how do we do modeling and quantitative skills uh, in a robust way that will then be able to show up and impact classroom practice uh, has kind of been my focus so since I've arrived. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, and you're hitting a lot of those notes of, I think I, I would be surprised if we didn't find, you know, every teacher who's working with particularly an AP, you know, and, and anybody dealing with any of the NGSS standards, I, I remember distinctly sitting down two years ago saying, okay, I know this word modeling and I know that I'm doing it wrong <laughs> or, or I've heard this word modeling and they keep using this word. It's probably important. <laughs> what does this look like in my classroom? Um, and then the quantitative piece, um, Again, that box that is, I feel like I'm slowly being opening. So uh, I think everything that you're talking about is is stuff that's rich for for anybody who's who's getting ready to work into the classroom. So um, this is very a very exciting topics to to hit upon. All right. So uh, before we uh, we transition into any questions you guys have, which I am terrified about, and uh, and uh, picks of the week, uh, what do you guys uh, what do you guys do uh, when you're when you're not teaching? Uh, we'll go with you, Michael, first. What what are you doing aside from taking care of two little humans uh, when you're not uh, working on teaching and learning? Yeah, I was kind of all over the place back when I was pre kids, and so I had to prune it down and kind of pick the things that are I'm most passionate. I really I play volleyball. Uh, I've played volleyball since I was in high school, and so that's something that I I, I have carved time out for even post children uh, to go out and play. Uh, my love is the indoor game, the six the six man game, uh, but I'll play just about anything. So it's beach season right now, and uh, there's a group of uh, friends of mine who I have made through the gyms where I play. Who we just have a personal game where we set up a net and play beach. Uh, co-ed just as a way to practice in an informal setting. And I, I really like that about how it's set up because so often, uh, you know, as in any athletic activity, competition inherently seeps into the space. Uh, <laughs> but this this uh, informal personal time, 
uh, for playing. It's something that I really look forward to every week. And so uh, volleyball is, is one of my hobbies. And I, I'm a maker, so I really like to make stuff, play with uh, electronics, something I love. 3D modeling and 3D printing is a thing that I like to to play with. And uh, so I'm looking forward to getting into my workshop. And I've got a, I've got a couple of projects lined up. One that's actually got some due dates coming up here in a couple of weeks <laughs> that I need to get cracking on uh, to try and come up with, uh, you know, making stuff, finding new ways, new processes is uh, always interesting. How else can I solve problems is a fun question to ask. Neat. Yeah, Lawrence. Uh, uh, I, uh, though I play plenty of video games, I'm really a tabletop gamer is my like primary passion and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and uh, lots of board games. <laughs> I met my wife playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So I just, I'm total geek out with a, give me some dice and some cardboard and some chips <laughs> and we're going to have a great time. So I'm going to do a lot of that this summer. And then the second thing I do a lot of is uh, actually recreational reading. I like to read a lot of fiction and uh, I'm currently reading a book, uh, uh, it's a, a science fiction series. It's a young adult series, or at least that's how it's marketed. But I think it's it's a great series. The Illuminae Files. Uh, it's a science fiction series. It's kind of the it's it's so great. And what makes it great, I mean, whether you like space action or not, is that it's not written as prose. The authors and it's two collaborative authors on this have written it as a collection of historical documents. So there's a, uh, you have some email exchange and then you have a medical file and then you have a psych, psych evaluation and then you have the transcript from a, a security feed and then you have a press release. And so nowhere do you have people just, he went downstairs and they had a conversation and he got something out of their fridge. You, you are piecing together the story from all of these documents and it is fantastic. I love it so much. So uh, if you're looking for some uh, engaging summer reading, uh, the Illuminae files, I recommend it. Cool. Yeah, I, I'll add it to my 8,000 books list yeah. that I <laughs> could go in there. I do like a book series. Um, so I definitely have to, to plug that one in. All right, cool. Uh, so before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you guys have any questions for me? I don't know if one of you guys has a question or both or... Uh, yeah, I'll ask you. This is just, you know, for the sake of conversation. Uh, reflect in the past year and tell me a moment that a student said something that made you super proud. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, just one? Um. Uh, or no, no. This is your podcast. As many as you like. Well, I think that the one um, – so it happened actually last last fall. I was meeting with um, I was meeting with some students who I was writing college recs for. And so this is for a current senior and um, and she who just graduated, uh, but I, I was meeting with them and I was talking about their college recs and I, I it was a student for whatever reason I hadn't checked in with them um, and I had started to write their letter and I, I had scheduled a meeting and I sat down with her and uh, and I asked her you know like what are some memorable things from your class and she said oh when you told me that I wasn't a number um, and and I tell my students that a lot I say you're not a grade you're not a number you're you're a human being. Um, and I have a lot of students who come in because I teach at a very high power school that are very much about their grades and they they basically their grades are who they are. It's their identity and they don't allow themselves to have an identity beyond those grades. And it really, really bothers me because it creates no space for making mistakes. Um, and that's so important in learning. And so you get these kids who come into really hard classes and, and you know, this girl is like beating herself up because she's not getting A's right off the bat. 
And I was like, yeah, you're not getting A's and, and was really significantly struggling. And I say those words out loud and I sh- I'm sure that we sat down in a meeting and, and at some point when she was really struggling and deciding whether she was going to stay in AP bio as a junior and could her GPA handle it. And I'm like, look, you're not a number. This is, you care about biology. You want to learn. You're going to get there. You know, you're bright, you're hardworking, you're going to get to this point, but you got to give let up a little bit on yourself and, and you're not a number, you're a person, you're working this out. And when she said those words back, to me, it actually meant that not just the biology, but the actual like philosophy of how I try to treat my students is actually being heard uh, by students. Um, and I'd say that that was probably that was probably the 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 biggest reward. It's actually the thing I think every morning when I walk into school, um, I would walk by this this girl because her locker was right near where my classroom is, and I would see her, and it, I could not disconnect those words from her. Um, from that meeting every single time I saw her all year long, it was reinforced. Yep. They're not numbers. You've got to keep telling them that they need to hear those words. Um, and so that was probably the biggest, uh, biggest takeaway in terms of a positive, positive impact that I had on a kid. And, and I felt very proud that, that a student was able to take that away. That's excellent. That's a good one. Yeah. You crushed that question. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you got something for me or I always, I, if any students listen to this, they will tell you, I never don't swing at a, at a request for questions. Um, so I'm going to stick to one. And I actually, this is a nice microcosm of how I am different from Woodruff. Uh, so uh, I talk about my excitement for, for changing over the coming episodes and just over the coming professional practice, uh, because I think charting our growth is something that's not only important for our own development, but also for modeling to our students and our colleagues of embracing that we're changing and that what we did last year is not what we may do next year. And uh, and not only being okay with that, but that it is appropriate that we that that's a part of how you develop as a person. And so, uh, do you have a do you have an example or an instance of something throughout the course of your teaching practice where there was some some conversation or some piece of research or some interaction at a conference or with a colleague where there was some fundamental part of your of your practice that was shaped or changed in a meaningful way uh, to for the better to to make a change that was an improvement, maybe something that was a little bit scary or risky, uh, but a change that you were proud that you made. Uh, yeah, in terms of uh, scary or risky, I think I'm 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 going to hold off on that because I think I'm going to try some of those for next year. But um, I can definitively say that. So last year, at the end of the school year, I went off to the NABT BSCS. Um, AP Biology Leadership Academy, one of those ones that they run around the country. Um, I went down and uh, went to the one with uh, a whole group of women down in Florida, including Chi Klein and Robin Valeri and uh, Valerie May and, and, and that whole group that led the um, that PD. And I learned a lot about that, but I ended up making a lot of changes, not to my AP class, but to my honors class. And um, it led me to uh, push that we make some changes. And then when I was at the NABT conference, I actually went and sat down and I talked to Diana Shields, who was also, who ran a different version of that same workshop. And this is a long way of getting to the point where I have long struggled with having my students internalize and understand their learning objectives. Like I tell them the learning objectives, I give them to them, but I find that the language that I use that is my clarity is not meaningful to them. And early in the year I was asking and I was doing some, I was, I was trying to do formative feedback where I was asking the students, which of the learning objectives are not clear. And I was getting sort of garbage back. Like my kids could not deconstruct my words 
in a way and give me feedback so that I could do anything with it. And when I sat down with Diana and I eventually had her on my show, she talked about I can statements, which I first heard about last summer, but it was in all the things I changed, I didn't incorporate that. And then the next unit, I put together a document where I basically took all of my learning objectives and I just changed the beginning of them to like actionable, I can describe this topic or I can compare these two things. And I took our learning objectives that we had written out and I put them into an I can list and I gave it to all my students and then I had them fill them out and tell me, yes, they could, maybe they could, or no, they couldn't. And eventually I went down to, yes, they could, or no, they couldn't. I actually got rid of the maybes. I said, I want to you know, yes or no, can you do this? And then what I started doing is I took those and I started making f- structural reviews with challenge problems based off of everything they said they couldn't do. And so this is a case where I I got some initial teaching. I wasn't I learned this practice at a at a first workshop. It was part of too much. I didn't incorporate it. I then sat down with somebody else who ran the same workshop. <laughs> I was struggling at a in the middle of the year at a different point. I listened to the feedback differently. I then tried it got some feedback from my students, modified it a little bit more, and now my students will tell you it is the most helpful thing that for them to help get ready for tests. So this, I think, sort of speaks to that evolution and feedback and listening to both experts, colleagues, and your students to devise systems that work for them in your building. So I hope that that gives a, a Yeah, that was great. That, that incremental process of heard it, didn't use it, kept looking about it, kept thinking about it, trying things, revisions, fine-tuning, tweaking, especially that responsiveness to what the students are saying. Yeah. Uh, the maybe it's not useful, get it out of there. Let's, like, let's really make it do what it needs to be doing is exactly, I think, the kinds of narratives that I like a lot. So yeah, thank you, you got it. <laughs> uh, I mean, that story was great for the things that he just said. Also, uh, you had that community aspect in it. You were getting this information from a workshop and uh, I'm going to presume it's research supported. I don't know. I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt there. But then you were de, de, uh, decompressing it, de, deconstructing it with a colleague who was at the same thing but had a different experience with you. And that's really important. That's what the heart of uh, our podcast is about, is like get people in the conversation. And so that's really good. And another thing that you said, you said that it was good for your students. Yes, but man, it's good for you when oh, a student can straight up give you a sheet of paper and say, I can do this, but I can't do this. Oh, absolutely. And now that's in your face. What are you as a teacher going to do about it? Maybe they can't do it or maybe they don't think they can do it. Either way, those are problems that you can respond to. And I think that that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, and that's it, great. And I, I will say that it's, uh, you know, the spirit of metacognition is one of those things that I've been churning around in my head that my students were like really lousy at it at the beginning of the year. Um, and I think that because I recognized they weren't very good at that, it led me to search and continue these conversations and go back to things that were presented to me in the past. Um, I don't think there's a lot of things where that's a whole, like this is one point of improving metacognition for my students, but it's, I certainly haven't figured that out with my kids. Um, and that's, you know, but it's with a group who, who definitely needs some, some extra help with that, that piece. So, all right. Well, you guys make me feel good by saying nice things about me. So, <laughs> all right. So let's move on to, to picks of the episode. Uh, Lawrence, you're up first. Uh, tell us what is your pick of the episode? Uh, I recently read an article in the US, U.S. News and World Report that was a synthesis piece uh, that was about the achievement gap uh, in the summer. What happens? How does the summer affect the achievement gap? And it was basically looking at um, 
high middle and low class families. And there was a, uh, they referenced several studies, but one of them was a study that involved 18,000 kids. All of them had just graduated kindergarten. So this is the space before first grade, the summer before first grade. They tracked uh, the, the SES and the uh, summer activities of these families. These were all self-reported, but this is what they had. When they were doing this study, they separated the low socioeconomic status from mid and high. So mid and high get to be clumped in one group. We'll just walk <laughs> right past that critique. Um, so it's summer camp, 20% of low-income families go to summer camp, 40% of not low-income families go to summer camp, 40% of low-income families go to art museums, 60% of not low-income families go to art museums, 15% of low-income families go to plays, 30% of not low-income families go to plays, 40% of low-income families read every day, 50% of not low-income families read every day. Uh, so there is this investment gap in summer activities. And when they compared this to a study in 1999, that gap is increasing, as in the amount of money middle and high income uh, families have to uh, spend, they are spending more proportionally on their own students' uh, summer enrichment mm -hmm. opportunities than low income families are. Uh, and that was that was published this month, uh, so that that's available for all to uh, consider. Yeah, something to think about as we. Oh, you guys are in summer, but um, in a month I go into summer. So uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. Now the question is, what do we do about it? Uh, which will be a uh, something to wonder about. Yeah, yeah. I'm I not, thought it was an interesting thing to kick off the summer with. What are you doing with your kids? Yeah. All right, Michael, what do you got? Uh, yeah, so so I recently on uh, a connection through Twitter of all places saw a reference to a new study that came out uh, very recently. Uh, so it's still online only, as a matter of fact. It hasn't even come out in the actual printed editions of this uh, psychological science. Uh, but it's a study done by Dr. Watts and a couple of others. And he, uh, he shared that they did a replication of the famous 1970s marshmallow research. Uh, so I know this is something that we explicitly talked about in my classroom. It's something I know many of my colleagues uh, know about or have referenced or even done with their students in the past uh, about that delaying gratification. So you have a marshmallow. Can you not eat it and get more later? Or are you going to eat it right now? And that's a that's been a pretty impactful piece of work, pretty foundational piece of research that we even discussed on one of our early episodes. Um, and so he, uh, these researchers did a uh, conceptual replication of that research uh, on a subset on a smaller demographic of of children, and then did longitudinal um, uh, data collection with those children as they got older and failed to reproduce some of the same patterns that they saw in the original research. And that blew my face off. I, because it was something that I've thought about for a while, something that uh, Mr. Woodruff and I referenced frequently in our discussions and in our considerations of students. And so yeah. with this with this replication, not reproducing the results, I really got to think about what's the deal? Like, why, why is this different? Um, because there's been a lot of follow-up research. So I'm not sure that I'm ready to say marshmallows are garbage, you know, throw it out the door, out the window, but why is this different? And why is it meaningful? They focused on um, students coming from families whose parents don't have a higher education. Uh, so 
is that important? And if it's important, why is it important? So um, I, I hope that your listeners will go look up this study and post in the comments of this episode and tell me what it means because I <laughs> it's so new. I don't know what it means yet. Yeah. So uh, I really want to have a conversation with some people out in, out in the community about how this failure to reproduce uh, matters and how it may not matter. So I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't you, know. you got a lot in this one because you do have the failure to reproduce, which is I think, you know, it's, I think it's been broad brushed to like all research, which I don't know is particularly fair. Um, I think most of the failure to reproduce, you know, things that have come out really have been, you know, psychology, social science experiments. It has been a larger issue. Um, I don't want to say that, you know, life sciences or physical sciences are immune to it, but I don't know that the reproducibility crisis as sometimes reported on NPR or other things like that is is as broad in all areas of research as it's brought up to be. And also, you know, um, I think that it's also viewed as a crisis, like it's a negative thing. I don't think it's a bad thing when somebody runs another study and says, wait a minute, I want to challenge or question some aspects of the data or some aspects of this. If anybody's taking a single study in any field and deciding that that means it's canon, they're doing science wrong. Um, and so it needs to be that we're using a wide variety of observations to draw and make our decisions about what is a phenomenon, what's not. It shouldn't ever be single research point. And so for me, um, I don't think this is a crisis. This is called uh, the way research is supposed to work. Um, mm-hmm. And it maybe sometimes it's just we have impatience. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take a look at it because I know this is one that I've heard some stories about this as well. So I'm, I'm sure I'm going to find some uh, – some some stuff out there about uh, people making meaning out of this, but I'm not sure I'll always agree with them. <laughs> right? Yeah, and that's also that's okay. Also, we talk about especially in the nature of science in our biology classrooms that you talk about. You have a theory that explains our current observations. If there's a new observation that's disruptive or external to that theory, you don't just throw in the trash can. Right. You refine that theory, you find the revisions or the updates or the changes so that it can accommodate all of the information that we have available. And while um, it you mentioned it's not all as much of a problem in the natural sciences. We should be modeling that process in, in all of our practice. Yeah. So all research should figure it out. That. All research should follow that. Absolutely. All right. So uh, for my pick, um, I'm putting down one of my summer readings uh, that I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at, uh, which is a crack in creation. Uh, and this is gene editing and the unthinkable power of uh, to control evolution. This is Jennifer Doudna. Jennifer Doudna is one of the, uh, she's the from the California contingent of the founders of CRISPR. I know there is a, uh, a Cambridge-based Broad Institute uh, group that is uh, put in patents for it. There's also been Jennifer Doudna's, but uh, I have talked to several people who have read A Crack in Creation or have at least started A Crack in Creation by Jennifer Doudna uh, about her path to discovering CRISPR and CRISPR technology. And to me, this is a super fascinating topic. And one that I feel like my students, when they go out and do research, is something that they come back and they go and visit a research lab and they're always like, so what's CRISPR? Um, that's, it's not in our textbook. It's not in uh, Campbell 9th edition. Uh, <laughs> what, what is this thing? Or, or even Campbell, I don't think it's in 10th edition either. Um, but they're like, what is this this thing called CRISPR. And it's something I think I've developed a good understanding of, but I think, um, like we always say, telling a story is so powerful. I think understanding the story behind that discovery uh, will provide me a context behind it. Plus, I've had several people read it and have said that it's a wonderful narrative. So uh, this is a crack in creation. Uh, Gene editing is on my summer reading list, and um, and I know it's on several other people. So uh, if you if you see me during the summer, uh, we, can, we can dialogue on this one. <laughs> 
All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this has been a, a great topic. I think we sort of went all over the place, which is, I think, perfect. Uh, let me give you guys my credits. Um, you can support this and uh, every episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, I invite Patreons into a Slack community with myself, John Darko, and David Kanufke. Um, our Patreons all get invited into a community to discuss things there. Uh, also, I get my episodes out a little bit earlier to my Patreons than to my other feeds. Uh, music on this and every episode is presented by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can get show notes both at the Patreon page and at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Michael at Ralph0305, or you can follow their podcast at Two Pint PLC. I could not find Lawrence on Twitter. Uh, that but... makes me so happy. <laughs> I have, I do my very best to avoid any social media footprint. <laughs> so that's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, you and uh, Jason Manzukis are both not on Twitter. So that's a little inside joke for podcast followers of us. Uh, Thanks. All right. So thank you guys for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon.